give it to Gray. And Gray for the fourth time tonight. Four touchdowns. And a flag down on the play. And another one comes in at the end. Get one. Late Saturday night, I don't know, I couldn't sleep on Saturday night, and part of it was I was really excited about an awesome Yale hockey win against Harvard that I had watched. Another part of it was I was was excited for the Saints game, but I was really nervous that the Saints defense was going to turn Andy Dalton into Joe Montana, which happened. And while I was thinking about that, I was sort of thinking about the team, and I was thinking about Brandon Cooks and his season, which has been pretty good. Obviously, going to be pretty incomplete as he's going to miss some time with a thumb injury. And I, it's one of those things that I, I saw that he injured was injured, but somehow it didn't get mentioned on TV or anything. So, but I wasn't surprised when I heard the news the next day. Anyway, I got to thinking about Sammy Watkins a little bit, and uh, I think when the Bills made the Sammy Watkins trade, and initially people said this is a great player, but they gave up a lot, and did they give up too much? And then it was like, well, it'll be a bad pick if they, it'll be a bad trade if they give the Browns a top five pick, right? But that's not going to happen. Doesn't look like it. Then it was sort of like, well, really, what will matter is how good Ebron is because that's who they probably would have picked instead. That's way too early to decide, but maybe I would say most mock drafts, mock redrafts, because that's a popular thing to do. Sure, have Ebron way. Below ninth pick. Okay. But I think what it's going to come down to is this question, and I want to get your opinion on it. Would you rather have Sammy Watkins than any other wide receiver who's a rookie this year? Because they could have had any of the other ones. None of them were picked between four and nine. And you're one. That's what I think is really – I think – the Bills may have drafted the next Jerry Rice, but the problem might end up being that someone picked the next Calvin Johnson seven picks later. I'm being extreme right. uh, to, to make the point that if these guys are the are as great, even if Sammy Watkins is the, the best wide receiver of all time, right. will it be worth whatever the next best wide receiver in that draft is and you're one the next year? I think the cop-out answer is that We'll have to see um, if the Bills kind of handle their business. I mean, I think the Bills could very easily tank and end up six and ten or something. Still, uh, now they shouldn't. They've got the Jets, who are a much worse team. They've got uh, the week after that, they have another Cleveland, who is maybe not a guarant- maybe not the win you thought it might be at the beginning of the year, but a team they they should be able to play with at least. Then they have th- three brutal games in December and Oakland. So, so you're still a little bit hung up on what is the pick? Yeah, I mean, if they go eight and eight, and it's the twentieth pick, then I don't know what are they going to pick with that twentieth pick. I here's the issue, I guess. I've heard there's two good quarterbacks maybe in next year's draft that are going to be worth drafting, and if one of those two is still available where they where, when Cleveland picks, then it's going to be a big deal. Um, I'm going to assume the scouts know better than I do. 
and I don't think any of the receivers have done anything to distance themselves from the other ones. So I'm going to assume that Watkins is still the best receiver in the draft. He's played with, I've heard rumors, maybe broken ribs early in the season. He's played with two different quarterbacks now. Uh, well, if – and you know what? I'm sort of wrong. Mike Evans was the seventh pick. So they wouldn't have been able to draft Mike Evans at nine. Okay. Okay, because I would have said Evans. Or eight, excuse me. Sure. Eight was the pick they had. Okay. I might have said Evans is one of so those So we sort guys. of have to take Evans out of the discussion. Okay. Because, I mean, with him, you, you have the most different player well, because Well, let's of his take size. Beckham because Beckham's been great in limited action for the Giants. Yeah. No, I I would be fine. The 20th pick, by the way, this year was Brandon Cooks. Uh, the 21st pick was Clinton Dix. So would you rather have a starting NFL safety, which is what Dix is, and Beckham, or would you rather have Watkins going into next year? Wait, why would I have two picks? Did the Bills have two picks? No, you would have – because you were saying what good is a 20th overall pick. Oh, I got you. And I I was just saying, saying well, last year the 20th overall pick would have got you another wide receiver. You don't want that. So the 21st pick – would have got you a starting safety for a playoff team, right? Packers are a playoff team, and he's starting at safety there. So going into the season next year, would you rather have Watkins or Beckham and a starting safety, for example? I don't know if the Bills need that. No, I've said as much as I think when you put that out on Twitter, I kind of – you did – we talked before we got on here. You talked a little bit about how people take that as trolling. Yeah, and I don't – I hate that because I don't mean that. I I, – Love to just have a discussion. About and I think it. my response was fairly honest. Like it was going to be a tough pick to swallow anyway, and now he or the team has the added uh, challenge of distancing him from the other receivers drafted. If he ends up with the same exact career as any of those guys, then then yeah, it's going to be a, a, a bust. He's going to get compared to that uh, the next Cleveland pick, also. So. I would probably. And Justin Gilbert is the guy that Cleveland picked this year who has been mostly bad. Some good, but mostly bad. Sure. And I don't know. I mean, like I said, I'm going to still assume that Watkins is the best player available. Uh, Kelvin Benjamin looks maybe like he's better than people thought. Kelvin Benjamin is still slow, but he's just so big and right. so strong. He's just such a weapon. He came out and said that he actually ran slow on purpose at the He combine. did, and I don't believe that no, for prob- one second. Probably not. Why would you want to go later? That cost you a little bit of money. And Yeah. Uh, it's just the bill that I think we're looking at what, what might be the best wide receiver class ever. Sure. And that's a bad year to have moved up to for a, a huge price sure. to get a wide receiver. I, I totally agree with that. The one thing I would like to see is, and this is taking some of the blame off Watkins, is Watkins has got to get 10 targets a game, uh, and that's not happening. So I'd like to see him with a new offensive coordinator. But that said, if you let me have a do-over, I would probably take it. I, w- I would take Beckham Jr. or one of those guys you mentioned. Right, so you would rather just stick at nine and, and pick a guy. Right, which... I know when you say that people get defensive. It's not or about eight. it's not about Watkins. It's about the other guys and what you gave up next year. Yeah, it's more just about strategy, right? I mean, that's really what it's about. It's about strategy. Like, you know, what would you? Well, it's the same thing in a fantasy draft. If you reach to take a guy in the second round, it would have been available in the. It's what they say about EJ Manuel. 
I always say I'm okay with them taking Manuel that early because he thought he was there. He thought because then I know the it's and right. I know it's their guy then. But that said, if nobody was really going to touch him till the third, then the Bills gave up a first round pick essentially if they could have taken him in the second. So it's it's just about value. I like Watkins a lot. Uh, I like him too. I think he could still prove that he was the right play, that it was the right move. I don't think it's like checkmate that that was a bad trade by the Bills. To me. The, the biggest glaring need on the Bills is quarterback. So if two quarterbacks are really good next year and they could have had Well, one of, one of the quarterbacks is going to go first overall probably. Mariota's going to go. Oh, are they? Okay, I don't know enough about the class, I guess. There's two guys and then a huge, huge gap. Right. Two first-round guys and then maybe not even a second-round guy from what I heard. Gotcha. But All right, anyway, welcome to the show. It is uh, Season 4, Episode 32, November 19, 2014. Mike Harrington from the Buffalo News, we've been fighting on Twitter a little bit. We're going to actually take some time to talk about the Sabres on the show today. Uh, maybe not the most exciting thing for a non-local listener, but uh, our local listeners and anyone who's interested in the NHL draft and hockey and, and things like that will be happy to hear Mike Harrington. And we're going to talk a little baseball with him, too. He covers baseball for the Buffalo News as well. And uh, Matt Crossman is going to come on to talk a little bit about and NASCAR, I was telling Don about this new format they have for the chase and the wild way it ended, and it's just sort of an exciting spot to book here. And uh, that's about it for today. We're also going to do a book club. We're going to make our picks at the end. We're going to do three things in a second. But before we get to that, I wanted to talk about where we're at uh, schedule-wise. Uh, Don and I were talking before, and we probably are not going to have a show next week. We're probably going to take the week off for Thanksgiving and some people are probably rolling their eyes and saying, all you guys do is take time off. <laughs> <laughs> but look at uh, Don is a vet appointment. And I told Don I do. that despite the fact that healthcare is expensive, he should consider a real doctor. Uh, but he has something to do, to, to do the day that we normally record. And then you push it off a day. Next thing you know, it's just it, the day before. there's just no time. Right. Uh, so it's not about wanting to take off. It's just about time. And also, it's hard to book guests because people don't work. They take off and they go to their home. Sure. So uh, we probably won't have a show. There's a couple X factors there that might result in us putting something up, uh, neither of which we really want to talk about yet. But chances are there won't be a show next week. So we'll miss you, and I'm sure you'll miss us. But make sure when you're at Thanksgiving dinner and you go around the room and what are you thankful for that the sportscasters <laughs> comes out of your mouth as, as one of those things. All right, let's do, uh, let's do three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. So what do you think, Don? Was Adrian P- Peterson and his people lied to or misled? Oh, boy. Now, I saw a comment on Reddit today, and I thought this was a perfect comment. Um, I'll paraphrase it. The guy, the poster said something along the lines of, any stance against the NFL sounds like you're defending a domestic abuser or a child abuser or <clears throat> whatever. But this sounds pretty shady. It sounds like... I mean, the NFL PA and the NFL have agreements with certain protocol in place, and this sounds like it's not followed. It sounds like they were dishonest to him about 
what getting on that exempt list would have happened. Uh, I believe Adrian in his camp probably thought he would get time served and maybe lose some money. Well, so early in the day on Tuesday, which today is, Adrian Peterson was suspended by the league without pay for the rest of the season. Yeah. And uh, I guess he wouldn't be able to apply for reinstatement until April. April, And allegedly there was some uh, guidelines laid out for him what he would need to do to be reinstated, which I'm sure would be some kind of counseling and don't get in trouble and those kinds of things. And all of that would be fine. Totally fine. If it just didn't smack of trying to make up for the Ray Rice debacle. And even the handling of the Peterson was thing was kind of messy. At now, the there is more. According to a source, uh, the arbitrator ruled in favor of the NFL Tuesday evening, saying the league can keep Peterson on the commissioner exempt list, effectively ending any chance he has to play. They already had an arbitrator, huh? Holy So God. I don't know if that means that he will be able to keep his money and not be suspended, but he won't have to be removed from that list. Huh. So I guess it's getting a little... Oh, okay, so it says here, due to the ruling, Peterson will remain on the exempt list until the appeal of his suspension is heard. Okay, I see what happened here. So Peterson's appealing his suspension, and under the CBA, he would be able to play during the appeal. Oh, right. So this he's guaranteed guy ruled, this money, at least, right. for this game and until... Right. Right. So right now, Peterson is basically in a limbo as they... Now, there was a theory thrown out that maybe the NFL put forth a crazy suspension that they knew would not hold up an appeal so that when the appeal was lost, they could say, look, it, we're serious about protecting our uh, the families of our players from domestic violence and domestic abuse. But the NFLPA, those scoundrels that they are, wouldn't accept the uh, accept the uh, punishment, took us back to court, and we have to honor the judge and let this evil man back in our league. Yeah, and they certainly are. Uh, that might be it. I don't know. They certainly are taking a high horse approach to this. Whole they always do. Thing. Yeah, I mean. They did it with the Saints and Bounty Gate, which was bullshit. They went on to say essentially that. They're judging him on the way he's reacted and stuff too. Like we don't think you're showing remorse and like that stuff. A judge probably should be doing, not the the commissioner of the NFL. I'm not one to make conspiracy theory, slippery slope arguments, but this sure seems like a slippery slope when you have these. It just seems like he he's arbitrarily throwing suspensions around and and that's always how it's been under the reign of this commissioner. Yeah it. I, I don't blame them for wanting to suspend him a year. I don't blame them if they want if they say that he should get help. Uh, we just want him to get help before he comes back. Anything like that. But the NFLPA is not happy. Well, one of the sports writers out there always says uh, on Twitter, "There will be lawyers," and uh, oh yeah, that's certainly the case here. And the bad news is, if you have him on a on a bench, stored hoping to use him in some kind of fantasy football playoff run, that's not going to happen. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it certainly doesn't seem that way. All right, uh, more running back craziness. Uh, yeah, it's not not a good day to be a running back with off-the-field issues. Garrett Blunt was cut. After he walked out of practice or something, right? It, yeah, something happened with him and the Steelers, and they just said, get the fuck out, basically. Yep. They weren't going to put up with it. They have a bye this week, so they didn't need to necessarily rush into any punishment. But whatever it was, the disagreement between the two, 
they wasted no time pun, uh, cutting him. Uh, Tomlin said he thought it was in the best uh, interest of the organization, and they wish him the best of luck. I'm sure they do. Uh, according to reports, uh, defensive assistant Joey Porter saw Blunt leaving early Monday night for the team bus and called him back into the locker room several times. Uh, Blunt went back in briefly but left again before his teammates had begun post-game interviews. Hmm. So, yeah, that's not. He was a really away. great stealer. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, he got he got himself arrested for and dragged their star running back down with some pot in the in the in the preseason. That's right. And uh, now, ten weeks into his career, there he's he's cut and gone. Also, cut was Ben Tate, cut by the Browns. Yeah, they're gonna roll with Crowell and uh, what West? West. Yeah, I, I don't blame him. I guess if Tate's an issue, he's the other two are younger and. Why not? Why Why carry a running back around? That's a problem. The Ahmad Bradshaw injury that all fantasy football owners feared from him happened. He's on IR. That's tough. I mean, that's, of course. Such a great season he was having, too. uh, Yeah, people think uh, that must mean. Murray's next? Well, no, that must mean (laughs) uh, that Indy is going to be in the market for Ben Tate, which I guess seems to make sense. But Well, the first name that came up was Ray Rice. Yeah, and they said they have no interest in Ray Rice. They've they've already come out and said that. Right. Uh, I, they did sign Cribs, who Josh, yeah, yeah, who doesn't seem like much of a running back. Really, it's more of a kick returner, right? Yeah, and uh, we talked about suspensions, and obviously Josh Gordon's is over, and uh, he should be in on the field against Atlanta this weekend. And I guess the Browns have said that they're maybe going to ease into him. But Atlanta's I not buying it. that, and I don't buy it either. No, I don't. I think uh, I think they make a point, if anything. I think they go the opposite way. The over-under on plays before Josh Josh Gordon is targeted 50 yards down the field is about six. <laughs> that seems about right. Yeah, I, I don't think they're messing around with that. Why, why not? Against that, def- that weak secondary, see what he can do. Anything else football-wise here? Um... No, I don't think so. Our right. teams suck. Yeah, our, our we'll talk about that fun. during our picks for sure. Uh, moving on, a couple baseball things, hot stove-wise. Uh, congrat- congratulations to Giancarlo Stanton, who signed a 13-year, $325 million deal. It's insane. He is going to be making $68,000 a day for the next 13 years. Insane. Sixty-eight k per day. I know. From I, now until 13 years have passed. If you've listened to this podcast for more than 20 minutes at any given point, you would know I'm not a baseball guy. And that's probably an understatement. But I don't know who this guy is. You don't know who he is at all? I don't. Wow. Is he the best player in baseball? He is, uh, he's got a case yeah. to be made. He's certainly being paid like it. Yeah, that, that's, what, that was, that's what I mean. Do you know what team he plays for? Well, I think you said the Marlins. Oh, I did? Damn it. That would have been a fun game. Well, if I didn't know who he was, I wouldn't. <laughs> but you could probably name some pretty big stars that I don't know what team they're on. But uh, what was the A-Rod deal way back when? That it was, was like 25 million a year. Okay, 25 million. Yeah. That's insane money. That is. You would think baseball was the NFL, the way they give out contracts. Now, I gr- He granted, should totally run a contest on Twitter where he gives you a day of his salary. Yeah, right? That's a $68,000 contest. Yep. And it's one day, and he still has 12 years, 364 more days of those to go. 
that's unfathomable money. It makes me think about like Shark Tank, where those guys are all billionaires or whatever. Right. It's like, how do billionaires live if sixty-eight thousand only puts you in the three hundred and twenty-five million over thirteen-year mark? Like, how do you how do you even spend that money fast enough? Do you like Shark Tank? I do. I love it. I love it too. Yeah. I uh, I always amaze myself how smart I think I am trying to like I get so mad at the entrepreneurs like I'm like take the deal you idiot oh yeah yeah what you're gonna do and I'm like wait a minute you don't have any inventions (laughs) (laughs) you're not an entrepreneur I'm always impressed I don't know why but obviously if you're a billionaire you've got there somehow it wasn't totally it can't be dumb luck uh I'm always surprised by like I'll see an invention I'll be like that's amazing. Like they're going to give him all their money, and then and like they, nobody takes it. No one's interested. And they poke holes in like all the things that I would have never thought of. Uh, one more Shark Tank take. Did you hear Groovebook? Remember that one? Mm-hmm. Uh, they just sold Groovebook to Shutterfly or Snapfish, one of those, for like thirteen million dollars. So, and I'm sure that's exactly what they that shark who bought it was hoping had for yeah. all along. Sure, we're gonna flip this crappy. Groove book to Shutterfly and get out of this and make a six million dollar profit. And how much do you have to love a business to like just not want to flip it? You know what I mean? Like, is that their even if that was their passion, selling pictures with a little groove on the side that are easily are perforated or whatever, and it made it easier to mail or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, why would you ever say no to being bought out unless you thought it was going to be like a billion dollar company? But I don't know. Like, that just seemed like an a no-brainer to me. Like they can just do nothing now for the rest of their lives if they want to. Congratulations to them. Yep. Also, baseball, we had a trade, a big trade, a blockbuster trade oh, with no. players who. <laughs> I'm waiting to see if I know. Who will Don players know are. them? Because <laughs> as soon as you said you didn't know who Stanton was, I said, "Well, with this trade, which is a fairly significant trade involving two significant players." Okay. What team traded Shelby Miller? Oh no! To what team for Jason Hayward? I have no idea. I think I've heard of Jason Hayward. I don't think I've heard of the other one. What position do you think Shelby Miller plays? Uh, uh, and by the way, Shelby Miller was packaged with Tyrell Jenkins, and they both play the same position. Oh. So I guess I should guess outfield then, right? Poor guess. Really? They both they play the same position? They are right-handed pitchers. Oh, okay. That would have been a And they have guess. been traded by the Cardinals to the Atlanta Braves. For outfielder, Jason Hayward, and relief pitcher, Jordan Walden. Is this a baseball move, as people would say? Is this a Well, Hayward, Hayward has one year left on his contract, and the Braves did not believe that they would be able to keep him. Uh, he's a right fielder, which is the position that the Cardinals thought they had a very talented young prospect who tragically passed away in an auto accident oh, during the World Series. Yeah, yeah, I heard about that. So I think they moved a starting pitcher where they may have had a little bit of depth in Shelby Miller, who's a really talented young pitcher, for a guy that maybe they think they'll be in a position to re-sign and play right field for a long time for them. All right. You know, so Miller was born in 1990. So, I mean, he's uh, 24, yeah. 25, whatever. Yep. And, uh, you know, Hayward is looking to cash in on probably a $200 million deal or whatever, so... But, uh, yeah, as a, a guy who cheers for the Braves, so I guess that makes me a Braves fan. I mean, not sure. A, uh, I think it's a good deal. makes a lot of sense. And if I was a Cardinals fan, I'd be excited about it too because Hayward's a good player. Uh, he's a great defensive player. He might be the best uh, defensive player in Major League Baseball right now. 
and he can hit. Yeah, there you go. So baseball trade, couple of baseball things. Uh, third thing today, and it's going to set us up to get into our interview with Mike Harrington. Uh, the word out there is that the Sabers and maybe other teams are desperately hoping to finish last. Yes, so they can draft Connor McDavid or Jack Jack Eichel. Now, finishing last would guarantee you one of the two. Right, and if actually, you lose the lottery, you 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 get the second guy. Right, I think it's Mike Shope uh, that kind of likes to word it like: if you finish last, you have an eighty percent chance of drafting Tyler or Jack Eichel. Like people think you're right. You're it, you suck for luck or whatever. But in mm-hmm. this case, you're trying to suck for. I guess you'd probably want McDavid still, but we, the way he should put it is you're. You have a 100% chance to draft one of the one two. Of, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Connor McDavid is not going to be on the ice for a while. No, he's not. He broke his hand or a bone in his hand or whatever in a fight right? Uh, for the Iriotters. And he's scheduled to be out about four to six weeks, which would potentially be a day or two before uh, the U.S.-Canada game, the Jack Eichel versus Connor McDavid showdown in the World oh. Junior Championships. Uh, but... I wonder, Jay McKee's a coach on that team. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what Jay McKee thinks about Connor McDavid breaking his hand in a silly fight. You know what? It seems like you get a lot of the old school guys that will come to his defense. Sidney Crosby actually said he defended the kid. I think Sid has fought before. That said, I don't ever want, if the, my, if the Sabres draft him, I don't ever want him fighting. I don't want teams to think he could push get pushed around. I don't want him to be a whiny player. I don't want him to look like a guy that ducks and runs. But, like, I don't know, get in a scrum and throw some gloved fists maybe a little bit. And by the way, I know that I have a certain persona on this podcast as one who's not a big fan of major junior hockey. But I'm not being unfair in saying that the league is littered with players, fourth, fifth line players who have no business in the league and are essentially there to round out teams and protect guys like Connor McDavid. Right. So there's no reason why. Who is the kid that he fought? Um, I think Gussie OHL is his name. Right. Is yeah. this somebody? Like, I mean, if this was in the World Juniors and he gets in a fight with Jack Eichel, then this is like the biggest story ever. And right, it's the rivalry of the century. Right, but just breaking your hand on some kid's head? And actually, I or think... Or on the board, yeah, right, he, they said? Yeah, swinging a big swing and a miss, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't ever want to see him do it. I get that he has a target on his back, which is, I think, what Sidney Crosby said, and I get that, but there's got to be someone else who can take care of people who go too far. I guess that's tough. I mean... Crosby's a big dude. He's the type of player that, like, early on when this, when he would be in the league and the Sabres would play him, I just want to see someone just, like, hit him. You know what I mean? Like, hit this kid. And nobody could hit him. It was kind of like watching Mario Lemieux. You'd always want someone to just hit him because he wasn't on your team or whatever, and nobody could hit him. He's big. He's smart. Yeah. But so Crosby must you must always have that target. You probably don't want to feel like you're just bowing out of all these – challenges and that but i don't know beat him up on the scoreboard mississauga center bryson siafrone is going to be the heel in canada if Connor mcdavid is unable to play in the world junior championship they have anything about that kid is he is he drafted it just this would be like my point is he might as well have fought this kid in the bar you know what i mean like 
this kid has everything to gain. You have nothing to gain from this fight. You have everything to lose. Um, does he look tougher now because of it? He is a 1995 born, so he's 19 years old. He is in his second year in the OHL. Not drafted or anything, though. No. He had 17 goals and 27 assists for 48 points last year. Four goals, 12 assists, 16 points this year, and five penalty minutes. I'm sure the five that he <laughs> he got for uh, his fight with Connor McDavid. Yeah, I mean, that that's where I guess I would land is my biggest point. Does yeah, this, McDavid, this kid is not drafted. Does he come off looking any tougher after this? Because if not, then he might as well have gotten in this fight. Uh, in the parking lot of the arena, like, it just doesn't. It doesn't prove anything. It doesn't raise his draft stock. Now he's got to heal a hand up. Um, if anything, I I don't know. No one's going to shy away from drafting him. So any little blemishes you can find. Yeah, no, this won't hurt him that way. No, but I'm just. I'd want him to be smarter than that. If I'm a guy looking at him, I like as soon as I draft him, I'm telling him, look, never do that again. No, I guess the other thing you could say is he learned a big lesson, right? I would hope so. Maybe he learned his lesson. Uh, yeah, I would hope so. And the uh, very last thing before we move on, congratulations to the greatest or second greatest Sabre of all time, Dominic Hasek, on his entry into the Hockey Hall of Fame last night. Oh, yeah, absolutely. For my money, he's the greatest, and it's the same argument I make about Jerry Rice being the best football player ever is easily the greatest Sabre in that there's nobody close at his position. Like, he's the best goalie, and who's second? Barrasso? Miller. Oh, Ryan Miller, yeah. sure. As far as, yeah, probably, right. And they're not close. Uh, Hasek did play in a defensive era a little bit, but he was he was unbelievable. He's easily the best regular season goalie of all time. If you want to take some knocks against him for the playoffs, he's the best regular season goalie of all time. Yeah, Rob Blake went into the Hall of Fame last night. Right. Dominic Hasek, ah, a few other guys, but uh, Hasek is uh, the main one for these purposes. Congratulations to him. And I'm glad he's kind of made immense with Buffalo. I think all of that was a little overblown. Yeah, Jersey's getting retired here in a few days or weeks or yeah, whatever, he, right? Yeah, he left here and then said, like, I will always be a Red Wing. and But that was all emotion. Bravado. And, yeah, yeah, all that. So he was the best ever. I don't – he probably was partially responsible for making Rick Chanaretta a household name just because of all those crazy calls. and Fair. Uh, he was awesome. He was the most unorthodox, crazy, fun guy to watch. If you played – if you were a kid growing up, like – in your, what would I have been then? Early teens, I guess. And you played goalie, street hockey goalie. You were Hashik. You were Hashik. You learned to drop your stick to pick up the puck or the tennis ball with your with your blocker. And he he was awesome. He was the most entertaining goalie I've ever seen. All right, we're gonna take a break and come back with Mike Harrington. Our next guest is a graduate of Canisius College. Uh, he is a Sabres beat writer, a member of the Buffalo Baseball Hall of Fame, a lover of all bloopers and uh, goofy highlight packages, and uh, a guy just trying to, to cover a hockey team without having to argue every single night with people on Twitter. He's nice enough to make his second appearance on the podcast today. A Warren Sportscasters welcome to Mike Harrington. How's it going, Mike? 
Good, Steve. Thanks for having me. I don't consider it arguing. I consider it spirited discussion. Spirited discussion. <laughs> you know, we were joking with uh, with one of your colleagues, with uh, Tim Graham. The last time we had him on, one of the first things we talked about was uh, was the way he deals with people on Twitter, and he's got a he's got this way about it that he really sh- I think he really straddles the line. He actually even shared a story where one time he had gotten in a little bit of trouble with with one of his bosses at the news, but He's got more of a, I don't know how to describe it. You know, you know what I'm trying to say about about the way he, he deals. He's got with more of an acid tongue, I think I would that's, describe it. That's very fair. My partner, when we were talking about having you on today, the way he described it, he said you can be a little defensive on Twitter. Do you think that's a a fair a fair assessment of your persona? No, I wouldn't yeah. say def- I wouldn't say defensive. Um, I think the points I make on Twitter. First of all, the first point I make on Twitter is you just you just can't swear at me. It's just an automatic block, and and you you would just be appalled, appalled at a look at my feed sometimes. I mean, it's just hard to believe. And this isn't eighteen year olds or college kids. I'm talking adults, lawyers, people whose bios list their businesses, just dropping bombs on me. You know that they would never ever do in person. So that's the first thing, is we take a lot of abuse you wouldn't expect on Twitter. Okay, so throw all that out. I just block those people. If you're a Mets fan from Queens, I block all them. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm paid to have an opinion. And what happens is, when I disagree with someone, people say I'm defensive. I'm not defensive at all. I'm just presenting my opinion. If you don't agree, then people generally say I'm defensive. No, they just don't agree with me. I'm not defensive at all. They just don't agree. Huh. Yeah, and and you know sometimes, and I think with with uh, the little the little the little disagreement that we had, sometimes these agreement these disagreements are are spawned out of the just the limiting the limiting amount of characters on there too, because you're trying to have these complex, uh, complicated sports takes, and you're trying to cram them into this small amount of uh, of of space without any any you know tone or uh you know it's just it's just these 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 dead words that have to be really tightly packed and i think that that's part of it too well you hit the key word tone first of all the limitation of characters is a big issue obviously but a lot of times on twitter a conversation quote unquote is a lot different than a conversation in person if i'm talking to you in person or right now over the telephone i can understand the tone in your voice i can understand are you inquisitive are you angry are you sarcastic you don't get any of that through words on a computer screen and that's where a lot of the conversation and translation is lost and i think that's where people uh, sometimes call me defensive sometimes that's where I get off the path because you can't interpret the tone of the person you're talking with, and that's a big factor in any kind of communication. Yeah, it's very, very limiting, and I think that. And and all right, let's just talk about it. Let's talk about our thing here, and and this is this is the the space issue because you have you talked about opinions, and your opinion, uh, a main one. And I hate to speak for you, but I'm going to try to summarize it, and you can correct me right away if I'm wrong. But okay. I think one opinion that you have that, that butts against a lot of other people's is that you do not think fans should be rooting for the Sabres to lose as consistently as they are. You don't think that embrace the tank, maybe, to summarize it in a, in a small Twitter type of way, should be a thing at all. Is that, Absolutely is that fair? Absolutely not. 
that 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 is fair. I don't have okay. to be defensive and change your opinion on it. No, that is fair. I do not believe in any way, shape, or form. And people may have read it in the season preview section we did on the Sabers. I wrote a column. I even referenced Herman Edwards' favorite uh, YouTube speech when he was the head coach of the Jets. He played to win the game, and that's my attitude on the Sabers this year. The Sabers are a bad hockey team. The Sabers are going to out of 82 games probably lose 50 times. The Sabres don't have as much talent as most other teams they will play. That doesn't mean that the fans should root for their team to lose. Think about other sports, any sport in this country. Fans root for their team to lose? That's crazy, Steve. That's crazy. Your whole point is to support your team. And people say, well, I am supporting my team for the long-term plan. Well, Okay, let's take the view we should root for the Sabres to lose to get the high draft pick. Okay, so now you're rooting against your team to lose for the 80% chance to not get Connor McDavid. That's what this is all about here. This is not automatic like it was 30 years ago when the Pittsburgh Penguins clearly tanked the season because they knew they were going to get Mario Lemieux. All right, you are not on, going to get Connor McDavid. Right. That is my biggest point. All right. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Hold on. We'll get to that. We'll get to All that right. for sure. All right. Here's what I think happens a lot in your case. And, and certainly when we, we were talking uh, that one night at, in, on the West Coast, and we'll talk about that in a second. What I think happens a lot, it's a, I think it's a little bit of a, defen- a defense me- mechanism on time for fans, right? Where you will uh, you'll tweet, that was a pathetic effort. Uh, it was a horrible night. What a horrible game. It's not acceptable. And I think everyone, for the most part, agrees with all that from what you're saying. And the way they kind of deal with it is to say, yeah, but you know what? In the end, it's better we lost anyway. They uh, agree with it by saying this is good? Come on. that. But you're right. That's what happens all the time. I yeah. get, What's the problem? It's not a big deal that they play lousy. I mean, right. gee, why don't we talk about what people in Toronto are saying these days? They're not saying it's okay the team stinks. You know, I mean, it's just, but you're exactly right. That's what is maddening to me. When I'm analyzing a game and the Sabres play very well, like I've said the last couple of games, or when they play terrible, and, and you talk about, oh, the Sabres didn't do this tonight, didn't do that, and you get 100 tweets or emails or, or story comments saying, well, that's exactly what we want. How is that exactly what you want? That's insane. Right. I that think, I think it's not technically exactly what they want. I think that saying that is a bit of a defense mechanism. You know, it's a way to sort of deal with the losing in a way. But I think that the people who who truly believe that have a decent argument. And I was trying to present it to you, and I think that uh, Twitter stopped me from making this argument a little bit. Now, if I were to put myself in your shoes, and I was trying to do this sort of uh, this night that we were were speaking, if I were to put myself in your shoes, and I I tried to say this using – using the words professional obligation and invest, and it, it didn't work out. You didn't get my point. Here's what I mean. Uh, you have no choice. Uh, well, I guess you, you could quit or, or ask to be reassigned, but based on what you do for a living in your, in your Twitter bio, it says Sabres beat writer. As the job of a Sabres beat writer, you are forced to spend hours uh, watching them, uh, traveling down to the arena on nights where only 4,000 others make it down there uh, right. to, to see games. You're forced to, to, to spend a year of your career uh, writing words uh, that I, I, I imagine have to be so incredibly repetitive and frustrating at this point. That's the investment professionally you're forced to make. As fans, some of us uh, can, can instead just say, you know what, I'm just not going to deal with that this year because even if the best 
possible the best possible scenario for this team is what and let, maybe I'll let you answer that if this team was the best it could be uh, on most nights what is the what is the the top upside for the squad they have uh, presenting well with? I mean that's an interesting question because they're clearly not putting the best squad they have on the ice you know why would we keep seeing Mazaros and Benoit on the ice even though Mark Pesic, for example, isn't playing very well in Rochester, wouldn't a Mark Pesic not playing well be better than Benoit Mazaros right now? And Ruidal so, is playing well. Uh, and Ruidal is playing well. You so know? you could use so, him as maybe an example, yeah. Yeah, but that's that's the question mark. So, you know, is the ceiling finishing sixth and making the playoffs? And it, it could be at this point. I mean, who knows? But, I mean, I, I often say to people, Better be in the playoffs and not in the playoffs. And every year somebody gets in the playoffs and makes a run, you know. But they're not trying to win this year, and I get all that. Um, you know, it, it strikes me that I think people are a little confused when I'm writing. I'm writing obviously for the audience, but the audience now in 2014 is not people that just live in the 716. Right. The audience is Sabres fans all over the world. So a lot of fans here don't want to deal with this year. They don't want to go to the games they're losing, and you still have people everywhere who want to read about the team. Now keep in mind, again, another important point, I don't care if the team wins or loses, and people forget this point all the time. And they say, how is that possible? That's the job. I don't care. When they play 82 games... I look at it, I probably am 82-0. and 0. Well, first of all, I'm 82-0 and 0 if I get my stories in on time and meet my deadlines. And if I don't meet my deadlines, I'd be fired anyway. But secondly, I'm writing a story whether they win 9 to nothing or whether they lose 9 to nothing, And I have to write what I see. I don't care if they win or lose. And I, I totally accept that, and I get that, believe me. And I, I don't Fans, know. of course, care. That's why they're fans. And if the right. team is doing terribly, a lot of times, like exactly like you said, they want to tune the thing out, and they just don't want to deal with it. But professionally, there's no way you can say to me that the job isn't more engaging and more fun when in 2006 and 2007 than this year. Whether you care if they win or lose or not, that it's got to be a, a much more entertaining, enjoyable uh, loving your life kind of job when you're going down into the atmosphere at HSBC like we had in 2006 and 2007. No, no I'll tell you why. It's an enjoyable job now. The job is enjoyable. The job is what I do. It's not based on if the team is winning or losing. And believe it or not, here's an interesting point. This job is more fun and more interesting this year and last year almost than it was when they were certainly in 11-12 and when they were struggling to finish eighth or get in eighth. It's more interesting now. It's better to cover a great team, a Stanley Cup team, or a terrible team than a team that's in the middle in eighth place in terms of coverage. And that's not being a fan. It's in terms of coverage for journalism. There's a million great stories when your team is great and fighting with the Stanley Cup, and there's a million great stories when the team is terrible and the organization is a train wreck. So right now, journalistically, fans are going crazy. I hate this hockey. It's terrible. Journalistically, this is fabulous for me to cover. All right, give and me that's, something, that's something a lot of people would never think of and don't realize. Yeah, I, I, uh, I find it a little hard to believe. I mean, I, I just think about being in that arena as a fan or not. I've been in other buildings um, sort of a, a neutral, you know, as, as a neutral observer. Right. Uh, and... When you're in a, a building as a neutral observer and it's just an incredibly charged atmosphere, that, 
that's better than than a dead one. And and I'm I I'm shocked that it, it wouldn't translate to a writer. Uh, and I guess that's what I was sort of saying when we were talking that. Well, you know why? Because it's almost like being a player. I don't hear the crowd. I hear the crowd if I'm listening, if I'm writing my story and looking down, I'm focused on my job. It doesn't matter if there's 20,000 people or if I'm in Florida and there's 5,000 people there. It doesn't matter if the building is full in Buffalo like it is a lot of the time or it's like last night when the snow keeps people away. I'm focused on what I'm doing. I'm not worried about the the, the atmosphere itself in the building doesn't translate to my work. I have my own job that I'm doing. The atmosphere in the building translates to the game and can impact the players and officials and impacts the television broadcast. There's a lot of good things to show, and it gives them good sound for radio. It doesn't impact me at all. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I guess I, I get that, and I give you a lot of credit for unbelievable professionalism in that sense, but I, I, just, I guess it's just going to be hard for me to believe that covering incredibly high-level and important hockey wouldn't be better than covering this, I guess. That, well, I have to make it, it's a good point, but I have to make it important. If I don't feel, if I'm covering the Sabres and the Florida Panthers on October 17th, and I don't feel that's important, and I don't cover it with the same attention span and the same veracity that I covered the Chicago-St. Louis playoff series last April, I'm shortchanging my business and I'm shortchanging the readers. And I So think again... That- I'm not thinking like a fan. Every game is important. That is the job I'm doing that day. And I think what you just said was what I was trying to say in the tweet when I said your professional obligation is forcing you to invest in this team. I think you just said exactly what I meant. Well, uh, invest is the wrong word. Invest was I, probably the wrong word, and I think I yeah, admitted that. That's the issue. I don't invest in this team at all. I work for the Buffalo News. I work in the media. I don't care. I don't invest in this team at all. I cover this team. I report on this team. I analyze and observe this team. I don't invest in this team. I happen to think. I happen to think their strategy of going young, getting a lot of prospects, is probably the right call. In some ways, if I thought it was ridiculous and the dumbest strategy ever, just because I work for the Buffalo News, I'm under no obligation to believe it's right. I don't believe the tank is right. I believe that getting Connor McDavid or Jack Eichel would help them probably win more games down the road, maybe. But I don't have to invest in their 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 philosophy at all. They have their philosophy to do business. It's my job to analyze it and observe it. Right. I guess news, we have our philosophy. Some people don't agree with it, but I don't have to invest in anything they're doing. Well, I guess what I was saying you were investing was uh, energy and effort and words and things like that. That's what you were yeah. investing in the job. At it. Yeah, but and, I would do that no matter what a, I was covering. I would do that no matter what I was right, covering. Right, and that's what I was saying. I was saying that your professional obligation, your job as a professional, forces you to do that, and that's where the divide be, is created between you and the fans because professionally you ha- you do this job this way no matter what. As a fan, we be, fans become – fans are a different way. They can adjust uh, without – Without offending uh, a boss, right? They can they can adjust. Maybe buddies in a bar can question their loyalty or something, but they can adjust their level of commitment. You can't. You have to have the same commitment all the time, no matter what. As a fan, and I, I'm a fan to a, to a huge degree. I'm a fan. Uh, there's no other way to put it. I'm a fan. I w- I've been a season ticket holder. I'm not. Sure. This, I'm not this year, but it's it's not because of them. It's because. I have a brother who plays college hockey and is a senior, and I just wanted to spend that money on watching those games instead. Uh, yeah. If he wasn't, I would have uh, still been one this year. It wasn't about 
the the status of the team. But as a fan this year, I can say uh, I see what they're doing. I see where they're at. I see that guys like Mike uh, like Molson and Gianta uh, clearly are not clearly are not interested in being the best they can be at least so far this season. That guys like that have really disappointed me the way they played. So you know what? I'm going to go all in and say finish that last because, yes, there's an 80% chance we won't get McDavid, but there's a 100% chance we'll get McDavid or Eichel. And to me, it's Ovechkin-Malkin part two. Okay, well, and this, is, this goes into the argument of, you know, assuming things are going to work, okay? The Sabres, everyone will say to you, well, of course, we're going to be better down the road. The Sabres have the best prospect pool in hockey. Well, who says that? Well, there's a lot of websites that say it. This person says it. Well, remember, I also cover baseball, and I've seen prospect pools. And, you know, all these great Sabres prospects, okay, Steve, some of them are going to turn into pretty good hockey players. Some of them will get hurt and maybe never do anything. Now the jury's out on Matt Hackett. He was star acquisition for Jason Pommonville. Right. And now the star acquisition for Pommonville has been turned out to be in the Zadorov. So some get hurt. You don't know what happens. Some don't pan out. Is Johan Larson going to be a great NHL player? We don't know. So far, we haven't seen much in his three or four stints up here. So everyone is assuming, going through, well, we got this guy, this guy, and they'll list you 10 or 12 names right off the top of their heads. And it's the same 10 or 12 names you and I could throw out right now. Yep. We have no idea. Is Sam Reinhardt, here's a good example, is Sam Reinhardt going to be a star? Everyone, oh, he's a number two pick. He's going to be a star. Or is Sam Reinhardt going to be David Legwand, a guy picked in the top two or three of the draft who plays 12 years in the NHL and scores 18 goals and 52 points a season? Well, right now, everybody says Sam Reinhardt is going to be the Malkin to McDavid's Crosby. No one knows that. I don't know that. You don't know that. Prospect mavens on these websites, who are they? They don't know that. Everyone is just guessing and assuming, and everyone throws out the Crosby-Malkin thing. Okay, you just threw out one of, there's two key examples. I'm not a big believer in the Edmonton thing that everybody throws out, because I think the Sabres have built it a little better, certainly with defense. Edmonton never had any real defensemen. That's where they failed. Right. You threw out Ovechkin. Why is that? I I threw out Ovechkin, and I throw out John Tavares. And John Tavares is a little more of a, a better example because he's a center. Everybody says the Sabres need a center, they're going to get a center. Okay. So John Tavares was the number one pick that year, consensus in 2009. Everyone knew he was the top pick. Everyone knew the Islanders were terrible and were going to get him. So the Islanders have gotten him. And what has it gotten them so far? In five seasons, five seasons, Steve, the Islanders do not have more than 79 points in a season. They've played one playoff series. One series with John Tavares in five years. Remember, to win the Stanley Cup, you have to win 16 games in one playoff year. So this whole point of it's automatic, the Sabres are golden with all these prospects and getting McDavid and Eichel, I just think is a big bunch of hooey that is being proffered by websites and blogs and pushed by the front office, and it could work. But it's not automatic like everyone says. And if you're going to throw away a season, just throw away a season and waste it for the 80% chance you, uh, you won't get a guy who then there's no idea what you're going to do down the road. And let's not forget it. Let's even throw you Mario Lemieux. 
who Pittsburgh got in a guarantee. How many playoff series did None Pittsburgh play in Mario Lemieux's right. first four years? Right. They, they weren't good until Yager was next to him, basically. None. Yeah. They, they've won one series in his first six years in the league. And here's my issue. This fan base is correctly surly right now, Steve. They're impatient. They've waited a long time. They're very patient, I think, this year. I think starting next year, they're going to become very impatient. And now, are you ready to wait four or five more years? Because that's what it might take. That's how bad this team is. And I don't think anybody really thinks it's going to take that long. And history has shown it can. Can I respond to all that a little bit? What's that? Can I respond to that a little bit? Sure. Okay. So what I was saying about when I mentioned Ovechkin and Ovechkin and Malkin, uh, the, the comparison I was making uh, was that it's the best one and two in the draft since Mel- Malkin was second and Ovechkin was first uh, this year. Um, so I was I was sort of uh, saying that this is a, a chance where you don't need to fit. You know that last would be great because it would guarantee you Ovechkin or Malkin, which in this case is uh, McDavid or Eichel. Now I I'm much higher on Eichel than a lot of people because I'm huge on the development program. I love college hockey and I've watched Eichel already four or five times play against 21, 22 year old guys. People aren't talking about Eichel enough. He is is very close to to McDavid, and McDavid, in terms of you know, well, what could he be? Every guy who's ever gotten the exceptional status from the CHL has been has been a stud. Uh, so like a, a huge level stud, Tavares, Spezza, who's maybe the worst of them. Uh, who else? Lindros, I think, got it. I mean, it's relatively new, right. but guys who've played at, at that age, at that level, they they work out mostly. So it, it would have to be really bad Buffalo luck for him not to be, let's just say, as good as Tavares. Now, here's why I'm optimistic, and I, and I realize how bad they are, and I agree with you. I'm starting to get nervous about some of these guys that we're, we're hoping are going to be as good as we're hoping they're going to be. I guess. As well you should. Keep right, in I'm, mind, this is an organization that didn't win a game at the prospect tournament in Traverse City this year with their great prospects, and right. the Rochester Amherst are not tearing up the AHL either. Yeah, I'm starting to get nervous about some of that. That's a different thing, but I, I said to someone recently, like, wouldn't it be nice if just one time we've seen, like, why isn't one of these guys ever, like, fighting for Rookie of the Year? Whatever. But that's a different issue. Here's what, why I'm optimistic. Let's say you finish that last and you get Eichel or McDavid. To me, it's not that big of a difference either way. I know it doesn't sound like you really feel that. It seems like you're a little bit more uh, McDavid is, is is a much bigger prize. and, and that's a kind um, of- No, you know what? Believe it or not, I think McDavid is the one talked about more, but I think Eichel is really physically built, and I think Eichel's stature will grow when more people see him in the World Junior Championship. Yeah, more people a little right. in tune. More people have seen McDavid because they've gone to Erie, gone to Nag, or saw him yeah. at the arena. Eichel will grow, and it'll it'll even out as we head into the January. Okay, good. We're on the same page as that. So let's say it doesn't matter, and we get Eichel, and uh, we have Reinhardt, who I have no idea what kind of player he's going to be. I'm, I'm, I'm not assuming anything with him yet, because uh, he showed nothing, obviously, Right. So I'm not assuming, I'm not ready to assume anything about him. He could be a bust for sure. Uh, I have no idea. He could be Hall of Fame. I have no idea anything about him. But what makes me optimistic is one. I don't think that, and this is ahead, but I don't think July first, two thousand seven, ever happens here ever again. So when you, I think if they get close, the 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 organization is at a point now where if they can build this core 
this way, there's the resources and a guy who I trust in Murray, who I'm, I'm taking a little bit of a leap of faith on because he hasn't proven anything just yet, but the way he Thank talks and the, and the things that he's done, I, I'm, gonna, I'm willing to take a risk and believe in him right now. Uh, I know it's a risk because he hasn't proven anything yet, but I, I'm willing to take that risk. So that gives me optimism that he can put the other pieces in place and then the checkbook that we know is there uh, that has, has, has written some, some bad checks so far for sure. Uh, some really bad checks, but when the time is there to to add that extra guy, I, I just feel like I feel like everything's in place that this this couldn't have happened at a better time. Well, you know what? Though? And the I don't know if I'm is, making a lot of sense. I, but yeah, no, he makes sense. The problem is the Sabers losing Briere and Drury was the warning shot to everyone in the league. How many key players like that who's the team is built around have walked since 2007. Yeah, almost it's always been good players, yeah. go, but not guys walking like that. And the other problem, so now what happens is teams are signing their guys. So everybody says, well, if we get McDavid or Eichel, now free agents are going to come here. Well, which free agents are you going to get? You know, if you want to get a good winger, let's just say, for example, this summer, the Sabres want to get a good winger. Well, who are you going to sign? Are you going to sign, you know, Thomas Fleischman or Mike Fisher or, you know, maybe Justin Williams or Michael Ryder or, you know, I'm just looking at the list. You know, Matt Zuccarella, Nick Foligno, I mean, uh, Jared Stahl, Yuri Talusti. I mean, these are guys out there forwards. There aren't a lot of great free agents out there anymore. You know, so it's the catch-22 of I don't think you, you throw a season and you don't know about the prospects, but, you know, people think, well, Pagula's going to go out and sign guys. There's not a lot of guys for him to go sign. You know, you're going to get the next coming of Billy Leno and Christian Erhoff. You're going to overpay for the Brad Richards of the world. You're going to need to not look at free agency. It's going to be on the GM to make trades with teams right. who are in trouble with the salary cap, to go to Chicago and flip two prospects to Chicago to get a Patrick Sharp kind of winger who can come in here as a veteran and play, unlike Gianta. That's what's going to have to happen here, and that's why it's on Murray, and we don't know. I like the signs I see for Murray, too. Ultimately, he's a rookie general manager yep. who's, who, whose initial foray into free agency has failed. And we don't know how he's going to work in NHL trades. The only NHL trades we've seen have been deadline dumps. We haven't seen good trades trying to improve your hockey team yet. So to me, he's strictly a rookie GM, and the jury is still out, and we don't know what's going to happen. That's a very fair point for sure, and, and I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic about Murray. I, I like the way he talks. Uh, I like the way I like the media. The media does too, by the way. Yeah, and, and that that's you know, that's that's good. I, I you know I don't know. <laughs> I'm worried. I'm I'm a little bit more worried than I think the average person because, and I don't want to say I'm smarter than them because I'm not, but. I I'm just just by nature I'm I'm a little bit more guarded and I'm a little bit more apt to like just assume that the worst is going to happen. But even being that way, I don't see any downside. Like I just I I think it's like one percent that Eichel and McDavid aren't superstars in the league, and I think that at best this team is tenth place in in the conference. So you might as well be last place. And luckily for me, I can turn my back to a large degree. Focus on Yale hockey, and uh, and see what happens at the end. It's just you know I don't have to deal with it sort of, and and that's that's sort of a sucker's way out, but that's the kind of the route I'm taking. 
Right. And I mean, but the, the thing is, I, it's just hard for me in the spot I'm in. Mm-hmm. You know, and everyone was, assumes I've got to wave the flag and I've got to support everything they do. And, and people are just making a, wild assumptions. You know, well, let's be honest here, Steve. This great prospect pool, you know, aren't we a little tired of hearing about how good Joe Army is in Rochester? Oh, he's got really four, tired. He's got five it. goals. Yeah. What four goals? Grigorenko, nice start to the season. Four goals. I mean, shouldn't somebody be tearing up the AHL? Yes. If they're great prospects? Yes. Yeah, no one I, is. I'm really worried. I'm really worried about a lot of these guys. I, I've Absolutely. said it a few times that, like, why isn't one of these guys in this stretch? And maybe one of them has. I, and it's flashes, I know, but Gergensen's look like he's going to be a great player on this team for a long time. He doesn't do it consistently enough yet, but, like, two years ago, he was in the USHL. I know, and his, so, his career mean, is trending up, but, I yeah. mean, what is his ceiling? I mean, is he going to be a 35-goal guy, or is no, he going to be... Not. Yeah, eventually, I think the thought process is the number one center is McDavid or Eichel, the number two center is Reinhardt, and the number three center, and perhaps the future captain, is Gergensen's. So right. Gergensen doesn't get you a lot of goals, and let's not forget here, all these prospects, and this is the lowest-scoring team in the history of expansion-era hockey last year, that was pretty much on its way to being the lowest-scoring team in the history of hockey until the last few games this year. So they're going to need a lot more than just one stud 18-year-old center. And that, that's something that's why I said that you need some more experienced NHL players in here who have proven some things because if you're just going to go to prospects and hope, that's not going to cut it because the prospects, to me, are not nearly as good as people say they are. The thing about the scary thing about what you just said is what if they don't get the 18-year-old center? Like, what if they don't get either of these guys? Where do they go? Well, my, my point is, you know, that, yeah, obviously that's an issue. If you don't get McDavid or <laughs> Eichel. Really okay, but, let's, but you know what? If you don't get McDavid or Eichel, everyone says, every analyst out there, this is a great draft, and right. people you talk to in hockey say it's a great draft. You know, most people will tell you that in this year's draft, if he was in it, Sam Reinhardt's probably no better than number seven or eight pick. Yep. He was the number two. Mm -hmm. He was the number two in last year's pick. So if the Sabres get number three or four, and I know people will be, you know, furious and upset with that, and they probably wouldn't draft Noah Hannafin, the great defenseman, even though, you know, that might be getting Duncan Keith or Drew Doughty, but that's not what they need. So they'd end up getting some other forward who would probably be a better player than Sam Reinhardt or certainly than Grigorenko or Armia anyway. Um, you know, I think down the road there's a chance this turns into the 2003 draft. If you look at that list of, oh, you know, one of 20 the best guys. Ever. Yeah, one of the best Right, ever. and yeah. I mean, you know, right now, you know, everybody says you've got to have the number one or two pick. Well, you know, people throw the Detroit example of Zetterberg and Datsuk out there, and I get that's an exception. Well, where did St. Louis get Tarasenko? He was in well down in the first round, 16, 17, whatever it was. You know, it's about picking the right guy. It's about drafting and developing. It's about not drafting, you know, Artem Kriyakov in the first round or Marek Zagrapan in the first round. You know, for all the problems with Regeer not signing, being able to sign Drury and Briere, making bad trades, why don't you go over the list of, you know, first-round picks Regeer made over the years and see all the mistakes. And that's where this team is suffering because not every first-round pick becomes a superstar, but you need to fill out your second line and your third line. And they've had a lot of misses over time. They've been better under Regeer in lower rounds, getting guys like Gostad and Ryan Miller and Brian Campbell in lower rounds. 
And that's where they need to fix. They need to not miss anymore at the top of the draft. And we don't know. Have they missed with Armia? Have they missed with Grigorenko? We don't know. It looks like they did pretty good with Gergensen's Ristolainen and Zadorov. But that's where this organization has really stumbled over the years. And remember, you're going to make it a great first-round pick. Maybe that great first-round pick turns into Drew Stafford, and people can't get rid of him fast enough and with good reason. Over time, guys change and develop. And he, you know, Every guy you pick, they all say on draft day, I can't believe he was there. And then eventually somebody turns into a piece of garbage you want to run out of town. The only difference between the 2003 draft, the only thing I would say about that comparison is the first pick was Marc-Andre Fleury. The second pick was Eric Stahl, who I love. I love Eric Stahl. Uh, but this is, these two guys... These are, you know, the 16-year-olds who played World Junior Championships for Canada are Lemieux, Lindros, Spezza, uh, the defenseman from Florida, or started at Florida, who I can never remember when I'm giving this list, you know, McDavid and, and Tavares, and that's like it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any question, you know, barring injury or something crazy, that McDavid's a star and Eichel's a star. Again, I just remind people, would you not consider right now John Tavares a star? Yeah, a star. I think, I think he's a, star, he's a, right? a well, yeah, superstar. Yeah. So John, John Tavares would be one of the top ten players you pick in the league if you were to do a fantasy draft in the NHL, right? Absolutely. Top five right. forward for sure, too. Top five forward for yep. sure. Yep. Top five forward for sure, drafted in 2009. Here we are, November 2014, has not won a playoff season. My hope, though, is just that we're, we're, we're a million times better organization than that. That Garth Snow is one of the worst GMs of all time. I have one I like a lot. We have a beautiful building as opposed to trying to find one. You know, we have unbelievable facilities, and we have. Uh, we you have said all those things, and you're right. And you, you, yeah. you said my hope. Right. You're hoping. We don't, don't disagree know. that much. I guess is ultimately what we've discovered in this conversation, right? Right. We don't. You know, I mean, that's that the much. thing. It's it's just it's probably the way to go. I don't believe in throwing a season because you never know what's going to happen. Look at McDavid suddenly breaks his hand in a fight. You know, I've been holding my breath all year. What if one of these guys blows an ACL? What do you do then? You know, you never know what's going to happen to just throw a season indiscriminately. And we're assuming that this, you know, there's no way this one guy, whoever you get, lifts your whole team. It doesn't happen. Tavares is proving that. Ovechkin has never made a Stanley Cup final. They've been very good. They've never made a Stanley Cup final. Even Crosby, I mean... I know people want it once in their life. They've won one Stanley Cup in nine years. You know, you don't run through the NHL every year when you get your stud players. I mean, it's just it's, the examples are there over and over and over again. And this has to be a full organizational build without the history of mistakes they have if they want this to work. Mike Harrington is on Twitter. Do not swear at him. He's at BN Harrington. Swearing will get you blocked. Mets fans blocked. Only if they swear. Only if they swear. Only but, they I mean, swear. most okay. most of them do, though. <laughs> That's the way of the Matt fan. Ask Artie Lang. Uh, and uh, you can read his articles at buffalonews.com. Well, you can le- read at least 10 of them a month. Uh, and then you should also uh, still get the paper. Let it come to the mailbox, and then you can read as many of them as you'd like a month. Uh, and you're very kind to give a lot of time to us to talk about this on the show. Uh, thank you for giving me a chance after we, we sort of went the wrong way with each other on Twitter. Before I let you go, though, you're willing now, even though I know you don't care, I know you say that, but you're willing to say that the ECAC is a powerhouse hockey conference, right? You're ready to say that on the show right now. <laughs> I had to watch I had to watch the, the Union goaltender shut out Carolina and you know play last night against the Sabres. I mean, power conference, I, let's just leave it as 
a highly regarded conference of college hockey with high stature. Back-to-back national championships and... Uh... Yeah, but I mean, it's, that's, it could, you, could, you could make the argument top-heavy, too. Let's not go too far. Uh-huh. There's only like six conferences, by the way. So I, I mean, was going to say, there aren't that there's many. There's not I mean, that many, well, so if you're not a powerhouse, yeah. you're... You know, well, let's see the, what happens when Arizona State gets going, and you know. But yeah, college hockey—the landscape is quite interesting to watch. All right, Mike. Thank you so much for all the time. I, I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. That's a pretty good one. I like that. We really need to drop. Anyway, I want to thank Mike Harrington for being on the podcast today. Uh, we're going to talk to Matt Crossman in a minute. It's actually Wednesday, the day after Don and I recorded most of that other stuff. And uh, a few things to add. Uh, it's snowing a lot here. I think we may have talked about it a little bit. Uh, my mom, she lives south of uh, the city, and she has six feet of snow. And I live north of the city, and I have one inch, if that. So... I got lucky this time around. Brandon Cooks went on IR. That sucks. Uh, more bad luck for the Saints. Not very happy about that, but uh, what are you going to do? Anyway, book club. Uh, three books are currently uh, rolling on the book club. One, I'm about two-thirds of the way through, and it's awesome. It's by R.D. Reynolds and Brian Alvarez, The Death of WCW. It's the 10th anniversary edition of the best-selling classic, Revised and Expanded. If you're interested in wrestling books, if you're interested in what happened to WCW, this is definitely a great one to read. Uh, hopefully we're going to have both of these guys on in a few weeks. Uh, the other book is one that we got involved in because of uh, searching out the death of WCW and it's Hockey Card Stories by Ken Reed, uh, True Tales from 59 of Your Favorite Players. And the third book... Uh, which I'm most excited about, with no offense to those others, is You Can't Make This Up, Miracles, Memories, and the Perfect Marriage of Sports and Television. It's by Al Michaels with help from uh, John Wertheim, our friend. And with that help from John Wertheim, as far as I know, two copies of this book are on their way, should arrive any second now. When they do, I'll read it, and uh, we will have time with Al Michaels to promote it, which is huge. I can't believe we're going to have Al Michaels on the show. I'm really looking forward to it. Hopefully uh, not jinxing it, although I feel uh, very confident that I'm not. Uh, I feel like that's a, that's a done deal. So three books, You Can't Make This Up, Al Michaels and John Wertheim on that one. Hockey Cards by Ken Reed and the Death of WCW uh, by two guys, R.D. Reynolds and Brian Alvarez. That's it for the book club. We're going to take a break and come back uh, with Matt Crossman. Our next guest is based in Charlotte, North Carolina, and is a graduate of Central Michigan University. He currently writes for Charlotte Magazine, Bleacher Report, SB Longform, and Rolling Stone. He's making his fifth appearance on the podcast today. 
Warm Sportscasters, welcome to Matt Crossman. What's going on, Matt? Oh, not too much. I appreciate you having me on. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. I think I have uh, February of 2014. So, yeah, a while. Uh, how, first, before we get into all this, this crazy questions I have for you, the most, I think one of the crazier things is you're like, hey, you got to check out this stuff I've, I, I wrote about this so far, and it's on Rolling Stone. So, like, NASCAR is finding an audience on Rolling Stone. Uh, that's got to be exciting for them uh, and for you. Yeah, no, I, uh, I got a lot of response to that simply what you just said. Wow, Rolling Stone, that's pretty cool. And, you know, they've, they've done profiles over the years. You know, they did a profile on Dale Jr. quite a while ago. They did one on Tony Stewart maybe six or seven years ago that was uh, not only really good but pretty controversial, too. Uh, so it's not like they've never done NASCAR, but they... You know, they, they haven't done sort of, you know, not that these are day-to-day stories, but they haven't done, you know, NASCAR problems like this before. So, yeah, it was a, a good market to tap into. Yeah, it's really cool, really cool. At any point, did you want to, like, write them back and say, all right, I hope you like that. Can I can I write a, a piece on Pearl Jam now? Like, you know, like... <laughs> uh, baby steps, my friend, baby, baby steps. steps. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, I don't know about Pearl Jam, but I would uh, I definitely, you know, fly up to, to to Toronto and interview Getty Lee and Alex Lyson and Neil Neil Peart for the big the Rush Expo. 40, yeah, Rush forty is uh is this year. Um yep. so and it's funny listening to those guys talk, you know, like well we, we don't feel like doing a Rush forty tour, but maybe a Rush forty one. And I, when I saw that, I laughed. I'm like, well, I've never heard of a 40, 41st anniversary tour, but Rush can do whatever they want, you know. So if they want to do Rush forty one Go for it, right? You yeah, know, and, I, and you can you can bet that uh, I will be there. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I've missed the tour. Uh, not to date myself, but I'm not sure I've missed the tour since '89. So yeah, I've been to them all since uh, Test for Echo, which was '96. That was my first one. I just narrowly yeah. missed '94. Uh, oh, last year, didn't know. Yeah, I just missed the '94. It's just counterparts. Um, that was uh, the last time they played at our old arena, but I uh, made sure to get there for Test Frack when I've been to them all since. I'm definitely a big fan. Love Neil. Love uh, love Gaddy and Alex. And um, did you see the documentary that was uh, out a few years ago? The the all I did. Yeah. Oh, it's so I, good. Just so good. And, I, and I'll also say this: I've uh, I've been in this business for 20 years now. Uh, I still get nervous for interviews, but not not terribly. But the, probably the most nervous I ever was was I did a Q&A with Getty when oh, I can't remember which album uh, it was when one of their more recent uh, albums came out you know Peg towards him being a big baseball fan and uh, you know, that was it. I think the highlight for the two two or three highlights was I asked him if he ever made you know he's a big fantasy guy I asked him if he ever made a fantasy trade during a drum solo uh, <laughs> <laughs> And then I gave him a, a pop quiz uh, where I said, "Okay, one of your songs contains the word baseball," uh, and he and he got it right. And then I said, "One of your songs contains the phrase perfect game," and he couldn't remember. Uh, so I was pretty proud. I stumped Daddy Lee on his own lyrics. So. <laughs> I think you have me stumped too. That's so out of context. That's hard. You just put one word baseball out and trying to think of what that could be. Perfect game. It seems to me like I that that is I've heard that like that's from a hit. I want to say the baseball one seems. Let me think about I'm that not, while we're talking about I'm this. Not, I'm not sure that you would say that either one of them uh, was a hit, uh, but you know if if you've been to every show since '96, 
uh, you've heard uh, both of these songs in wow. concert. Oh, and there's one, there's one other highlight. I said, uh, I, was a, I used to be a big MST3K fan, and I was pretty sure that he was too, but I wasn't positive. Uh, and so I, and, uh, I asked him, I said, one day I was watching SportsCenter, and out of nowhere, Dan Patrick says, after the game, Geddy Lee was in the locker room talking to, to Randy Johnson. Geddy, I've always loved the album 2112. So I set the question up like that, and I said, what was a bigger deal? You know, getting your name on SportsCenter or getting your name on MST3K? And he said, oh, no question, MST3K. It's not even close. <laughs> so I thought that. I definitely, I definitely think I know the perfect game one is from Nobody's Hero, right? Where he's saying he, where he's talking about how, basically making the analogy, we cheer too much for people who make perfect games. Is that one right? That's right, and that's the one that he did not get. Okay, yeah, that that I can't think of the baseball one, but I'll keep trying. But yeah, I knew that perfect, the perfect game one was was right there. So yeah, all right, I'll think about the other one while we talk a little bit about NASCAR. I could talk about Rush all day, but I would disappoint the people who I <laughs> promised I would talk to you about NASCAR, but. You know, and one more thing about that is I can imagine, I, I can relate to you for being nervous uh, to talk to him, but could you imagine how nervous you would be to talk to Neil? Just because it would be like, I would be so nervous that I would annoy him. You know, yeah. like, I don't want to be the, the fan that makes him uncomfortable or upsets him, and I would be so nervous I would do something to be that way, you know? so I, I think I would almost rather not. Just you know, for that reason. Yeah, that, I, I'd rather keep my distance as well. I, I think because yeah. uh, I know that you know, that's I'm, what he wants, so I'm I'm all right with it for whatever reason. But you know how much he dislikes all that. So, yeah, yeah. You know. So I don't want to be a part of it. You know, so. I, but yeah, and you know, I, and I think if I ever did, like, let's just say I was in a diner because I, you know, he he grew up in St. Catharines, which I could leave my house right now and be there in 15 minutes. And yeah, let's say. Yeah, it's just right over there. So if I, if for some reason, I was in St. Catharines and I seen him, I think I'd try to talk to him about something else he likes, and like just have this really cool conversation with him about about what I'm not really sure because his interests are out there a little bit compared to mine. But I think that would be the the way I, like I'd want to go. Maybe like, hey, did you hear that Who cover or something? I I don't know something else. But anyway, uh, all right, back on task. You're you're you're. Uh, <laughs> You're rattling me a little bit here. <laughs> sorry, sorry. That's all right. That's all right. Uh, uh, NASCAR, right? All right. Yeah. So I'm into this. I'm really. I got really into this the last uh, couple of months. This um, this format, and I know that they've they've tinkered with it a bit. You know, when it started, it could get away from guys really quick. You know, you you'd, you'd work all year to get in the chase, and then. Yeah, one or two bad races and maybe the beginning of it and you might as well have not have been in it at all uh, and then guys could run away with it a little bit so they've been tinkering and tinkering and now that they've they've come up with more of an elimination type of a formula and uh, I guess now that you've seen it play out I guess my first question is do you think that this is a system that they can get comfortable with and sort of run with for a while or do you think there's tinkering that still needs to be done we'll start sort of uh, macro like that and get a little bit more micro as we go on. Sure. Well, I would hope uh, I sp- we will probably eventually get into uh, what I dislike about it, but let- let's set aside what whether I think it's a good idea to begin with. I think they have to stick with it. I think uh, I remember the first chase 10 years ago in 2004 was so incredible that I remember I, I was at that final race thinking this is this is insane. This is so entertaining and so great. I think there was four or five guys still in it. 
at different points in the race, you know, there's four or five different guys would have won. Uh, and then that race ended, and I think everybody thought, wow, that was this chase, as much as everybody hated it at the beginning, that worked out pretty well. But it only lasted a couple of years before they started messing with it, and they kept messing with it, and they kept messing with it, and then this year they blew it all up. I don't, frankly, I don't know what else they can do. Uh, I hope they would just leave it alone and let people get used to it, let it become normal, let it become part of the culture, so it's not something that they change every year. That would, that would be my hope. They don't, frankly, they don't have a history of doing that. There's probably been four or five changes that were, you know, admittedly minor, but still changes. It's confusing enough as it is. I think they need to leave it alone. I wanted to just try to take a guess at what you don't like about it, and it's the idea that they sort of create these desperate positions for drivers that can be solved by simply sort of crashing a guy. Is that what you don't like about it? The idea that that's that's part of it. My, okay. my, my first my, my first concern, frankly, is the very premise, the very motivation for all of it. The first is to create, as Brian France says, game seven moments. Well, first of all, these aren't games. Second of all, there aren't seven of them. Third of all, game seven moments happen organically. That's what makes them great. When you try to create them, it's contrived. That's my first problem. Uh, my second problem is what makes, what makes, in my opinion, what makes NASCAR great is that it's not like the other sports, that the championship is different. And then when you try to make it like everybody else, well, what, what kind of leadership is that? Who says, you know what, I'm going to stop being unique and I'm going to start being like everybody else. That's, it's preposterous, really. Uh, and, you know, the drivers essentially eliminate themselves by performing poorly. So literally eliminating them is only, uh, it's, it's only a marginal difference. Uh, and so that, that's, it, it, it's not so huge of a deal that drivers get eliminated. It's the, you know, if you win, you're in. If you win again, you keep going. If you win again, you keep going. And then, but if you don't win, you don't go on and you can have, a, a, you know, a guy could finish first and then 43rd three times in a row and still be in. Uh, right. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't particularly care for that. It's more sort of this broad appeal and, and also uh, to target, to completely change the foundational way your champion is crowned in pursuit of TV ratings of people who don't even watch the sport in the first place. It doesn't, who, you know, it's like changing a product to go sell it to people who don't want it in the first place. Who does that? And, you know, it, you asked if it, if it was a success. I would say in terms of creating buzz, there's, there's no doubt. I'm not going to pretend like it wasn't. It was a smashing success. It also uh, happened perfectly. You couldn't, it, it, you yeah, couldn't write yeah, a better it, script. You, you, could, yeah, you, couldn't, right. you couldn't have created that any better. Now, the ratings, if I understand them correctly, now they, they've changed a couple of times. And if I understand them correctly, there was you know, pretty sizable gains for two races, and the rest were either, the rest were basically flat. Uh, and that, Frankly, NASCAR's got to be discouraged by that. That if you, I mean, it's never, it's, it's hard to imagine uh, a scenario where the last four or five races have more hype, more excitement, more drama than what we just had. And there, there, was, there was not the resounding, like Sunday's race was, was flat to last year. That's a huge disappointment. There, I mean, there's no question about that. Right. There was a, there's a part in your in your column that you wrote. I'm trying to 
hope I didn't skip it too too far. I sort of had it queued up in the last uh, Rolling Stone uh, article where you just uh, simply wrote that Ryan Newman. Let me find it here. Okay, Ryan Newman intentionally wrecked rookie uh, Kyle Larson on the last lap just to qualify. Then there was this quote for him on Sunday where he said, and I had to get it translated for me, but I did, so I do understand it now. But what he said was, I thought about hauling it in there wide open on Kevin, Uh, which basically, which I was told means that he would have hit Kevin and used him as a cushion, taken advantage of that, and then won the championship that way. That's exactly what that means. And And I give him a lot of credit for not doing it, but I can't believe he didn't. I can't believe that there was essentially a way that... That wouldn't have been penalized, right? Is it illegal to open it wide open or whatever? The reason, and uh, I think uh, Ryan Newman should be praised for this decision. If that had if that had been a non championship contender, well, first of all, if that is a non championship contender, uh, and Ryan Newman is in, in second, uh, he probably he probably doesn't do that because he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't have to wreck that guy to beat him. Right. You know what I mean? Because that guy's not a contender. Right. But there's a, there's a difference between wrecking somebody uh, against whom you are racing for the championship and wrecking somebody in order to give yourself an advantage when it doesn't really hurt that other person. Like the week okay? before. Like the week before. When, right. he, when he wrecked Kyle Larson, yeah, he cost Kyle Larson an 11th place finish, but no driver's going to be mad at, you know, for any more than 10 minutes about getting wrecked for an 11th place position. So let's, let's imagine that he's, same scenario, uh, Newman can wreck the guy next to him uh, in order to win the race, uh, and there are contenders behind him. Uh, th- then maybe he does that because that's more of a strategic move. He's not taking out a contender. But to his credit, you know, I, I don't know that ever. I, I think there are drivers who, uh, I don't know that you wreck Kevin Harvick, like, like he suggested, but there are drivers who would try to make Kevin Harvick wreck himself, and then so you can blame it on him and not on you. You know what I mean? Right. So I, I don't know that anybody dumps Harvick to win the championship, but they would come a lot closer than Ryan Newman did. Yeah, I give him a lot of credit because, the, I mean, in all sports, the idea, you play to win championships, right? I mean, it's that old football coach, I think Herm Edwards said, we play to win the games or whatever, and there was something he could have done to win the championship and didn't. So I give him a lot of credit for that. But I was going through your Twitter a little bit, and a few things that people who are obviously bigger fans than me wrote was that they were a little worried, and this is what I think that NASCAR should be worried about, which I think I tried to to ask uh, a little bit ago, but maybe didn't didn't do it right. But people were saying things like, you know, this isn't creating champions, this is creating snakes. You know, or it's... Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that just would seem frightening to me if I was in charge of the sport. Okay, well, well hold on a second. That, that, that is... It's true, but it's also always true in all formats, no matter what. Because all 43 guys, all 43 guys are always going to be racing together, okay? So there's always the possibility that somebody who's not involved uh, directly in the championship hunt can influence it by his behavior. It's certainly more likely now because there are more opportunities for that. But, uh, you know, there was a huge controversy uh, a year and a half ago where, you know, Clint Boyer intentionally spun out in order to cause a caution, which then 
led to a whole series of events yeah, that I were that. intended to help us. Okay, that that happened uh, in the old system. It happened before the playoffs in the old system, and that kind of thing has been worried about and fussed about, you know, really forever. Uh, that you can be, let's say you're in, let's say you're leading, you're leading the race, you come up on last tra- laps traffic. The guy in second place is teammates with the guy who whose lap traffic you're coming up on. The guy in lap traffic slows you down so the guy in second place can catch up to you. Uh, you know, that, that's part of racing. It's strategic. It's it's part of the game. That happens a lot. And, yeah, it's, it's something to be worried about with this, but I, I don't beat that drum too hard because it just, I, you know, that's just part of the sport. Just this last thing, and we'll move on to other things about this, but what if you would have done that? It won the championship. What would the narratives have been? Well, that's a great question. I think the first narrative is, uh, you know, an undeserving champion. You let, well, okay, well, let's assume it's not Ryan Newman because you have the added layer of he was totally unworthy of a championship, didn't really even have a good season, right. lucked his way finals. Okay, so let's set, it, set that aside. Let's assume that, that Harvick wrecked somebody to win the championship. Uh, I, I think part of it's going to depend on... Uh, you know, what you thought of that driver before he did it, because, you know, pretty much the number one deciding factor in whether a driver's behavior is justified is whether you like the driver before he actually did the thing that we're talking about. Uh, but certainly that driver would face all kinds of questions, some critical, some just legitimate questions. Uh, NASCAR would absolutely eat it up. NASCAR would love it. They don't care uh, if you're mad about stuff like that. They care if you're talking about it. So, I mean, I think it would be fascinating. I think it's a really interesting conversation because let's equate wrecking somebody to plunking somebody as a pitcher. Uh, in some cases, it's a strategic move that you're doing it in order, to, you know, sometimes you're doing it out of anger, you're trying to hurt somebody, that's not good. But if you're trying to get the guy off the plate, if you're trying to scare him, if you're trying to make the other, play, other uh, you know, players worry about you, you know, that's a, that's a legit move. Now, you know, doing it in pursuit of a championship, that becomes different. So I, I think it would be fascinating. Now I would, I would praise the guy out. You know, it would depend on my mood. I would either praise him or tear him apart. I, I'm not sure which one or the other. This is another thing I was wondering about uh, about this new format. They've essentially created a Super Bowl, and they're playing it every year at Homestead in Miami. Uh, yeah. The NFL plays Super Bowls in Miami all the time. Should NASCAR, although you know. Uh, NASCAR's tracks are uh, are somewhat different sometimes than than football stadiums. Uh, I guess you can't race one that. I mean, you're not going to have it. First of all, they're limited by weather because it's in uh, my right. month we're in, right? So Watkins Glen is out, but you wouldn't have it there anyway because you wouldn't want your uh, championship to be decided on a road course. Uh, yeah. You probably wouldn't want to have it at. Uh, hopefully, I don't screw any of these up. Uh, Richmond, which is a small one. Uh, right, you, you might not want to have it there. No, no, I, I, I wouldn't put Richmond in that list. Not, not, not to pick apart your idea before you get to the question. Okay, but uh, Th- that's fair. I could be wrong. Yeah, drivers, drivers love Richmond. Richmond is a very like popular. Richmond. Okay, yeah. uh, I don't know if you'd want to have it at a super speedway, uh, right. may, maybe or maybe not, because that's just such a specific uh, type of racing. But yep. Um, and and I and and with in saying that, I understand that uh, that maybe one of the first tracks that would make sense uh, is a super speedway. But is there a spot, uh, a specific track that makes more sense than Homestead to have your Super Bowl if you now are having one, 
as opposed to uh, just you know calling it uh, the one in February at Daytona, the Super Bowl? Because you, you really yeah, are having one now. Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. I would say uh, the weather is a big factor. It limits you. Uh, yeah, limited. yeah it, it, you know, it's very limiting. You know, there's only a, a handful of tracks where you could have it. Uh, and I, I would say, you know, one of the things, you know, the NASCAR schedule is much more difficult to negotiate than, than people think because there's so many contracts involved and there's so much money involved. Uh, I would not be opposed to it being like people will talk about it should be in Vegas, you know, because Vegas is a big party place and it's a place where there would be attention. Uh, you know, if California, you think Southern California would be attractive, except for, you know, that, that race doesn't sell out and fans never show up for it. Huh. So really, I, I think you're kind of down to, uh, you know, Miami and Vegas, and I wouldn't argue with either one. Uh, I don't, I don't see it changing. Uh, it's going to be on a. It's going to be at an ISC track, you know, which is International Speedway Corporation, because that's you know owned by the same family that owns NASCAR. It's going to be at an ISC track. You can pretty much take that to the bank. And Vegas is not an ISC track, so the likelihood of Vegas getting the last race is pretty small. You know, I know last time we talked, or maybe it was the time before, we talked a little bit about Jeff Gordon and legacy, and he came really close to a fifth championship this year. Maybe a little bit of controversy about how his run ended. I think I'm right about this, that if the point system he started his career with never changed, he'd have seven championships now as opposed to the four that he does have. There's nothing wrong with four and over 90 races won. But since we talked last and after this season and and putting everything into consideration and looking at anything, uh, where does Jeff Gordon's legacy stand as one of the all-time great uh, drivers of the sport? Yeah, right there. He's one of the all-time greats. I think if if you started this conversation in 2001, you would have thought it was going to be him and Petty and Earnhardt as the three top of all time. Johnson got in there, uh, though. Yeah, Johnson, uh, I think Johnson has pretty clearly surpassed him. I mean, he has six championships to just four. Right. Uh, and Jeff has, I mean, he hasn't won a championship in 13 years. He's been... Like you said, he's been competitive in uh, several of those seasons. Uh, but I also, frankly, uh, nobody ever says this, but I think you have to look at, uh, you know, he did. He could have won those. He could have won several other championships, and he didn't win any of them. Right. He's lost at least at least two or three uh, on the final day of the season. And if you wanted to add this year in there, you know, it'd be hard. To, it'd be hard based on the circumstances. It would be hard to say he lost this championship because he got taken out of the third from the last race. But, you know, pretty widely considered that he had the best or, you know, a top three or four team car driver combination all season long, and he didn't win the championship. So, yeah, I think his legacy has suffered over the last dozen years or so, but he's still, you know, a top five or six driver of all time, and I don't really see him falling off of that. And also, more, more than driving as an icon of the sport, you know, he... He's still higher, in my opinion, he's still higher than Johnson on that. So, You know, I was kind of thinking about it, and I was like, you know, it'll, it'll be pretty cool probably if he can get to 100 wins, which certainly isn't out of the question. Yeah. Uh, and uh, obviously the more championships you can win, the better. But I was wondering if there's really anything he can legitimately do to really change his status much. Yeah, it, I, I do. I think another championship changes the equation. You think it does? It, I think it does, because... I mean, especially if he has a big season all year long and then wins it. If he, you know, 
Like this year would have been. He had a big season all yeah, year long. Right? Been, yeah. Yeah. yeah, this is a this championship allows for illegitimate championships, and that's a huge problem with it. And if you you know Jeff Gordon, probably you wouldn't consider him illegitimate championship on any standard because he's still Jeff Gordon. But you know if he has a if he puts another championship to put a period at the end of you know the the sentence that started in two thousand and one with his last championship, I, I think that changes it. I think that makes him. I don't. I don't know that there. I'm, there's no driver that has had that long of a gap bet- with no championships in between. Terry uh, uh, Labonte had a 12 year gap between his championships in which he beat Jeff Gordon on the last day. Uh, if Gordon had a 14 or a 15 year gap and then won another championship, that would that changes his narrative for sure. All right, let me ask you this. Let's say uh, the powers that be of NASCAR come to you and they say, "All right, we're sick of having to tweak this all the time. We want to make." We'll we'll make one more run at it. You make the decision. You decide how do we want to change this system a little bit to make it perfect. You can't completely restructure it. You have to work somewhat within the framework that they've created here. But what might you do, or what might what might you like to see change a little bit to make this system as as good as it can possibly be for the sport? Well, I think I would get rid of the eliminations because that uh, if you keep keep the chase. Keep the wins being important. They either get rid of the eliminations, or if that's too big of a change, uh, get rid of the final, last, crazy race for the championship. Because as crazy as that is, it also, in my opinion, just completely delegitimizes the whole thing. I think it's still got lucky that Kevin Harvick won it and that he was a legitimate champion. Uh, Ryan Newman certainly would not have been. Danny Hamlin would have been borderline. Joey Logano would have been too. So you had a 50-50 chance of having a, a champion that was actually worthy of being called the champion. People will say, oh, but, you know, other sports, you know, the Giants went 8-8 eight and, eight and won the Super Bowl that year. The Cardinals were 86 and 76 that year or whatever it was and they won the World Series. And that's true, but they had to beat people to get there. Ryan Newman didn't beat anybody. He didn't have a, a single race all season in which he was the top finishing driver among chase drivers, not a single solitary one, and he finished second in the points. That's ridiculous. Do you think it hurt? And I, I, they got a perfect, like we said, a perfect storm here this year with this mm-hmm. one. But if they're like, if those four guys are, you know, running nineteenth, twenty sixth, thirtieth, you know, thirty one, that just doesn't have the same romance, and that's going to happen one of these years, right? It, it is, and I think. Oh, what was the what was the first elimination race? The elimination race, I think it was at Dover, uh, where all the coverage was on guys who were like twenty second, twenty eighth, thirtieth, guys who were going to be eliminated, and they were covering it to see who advanced. And it was first of all, it was a, a logistical nightmare trying to watch because you couldn't even tell who was leading the race because they were focusing on guys two laps down. But then that you know, brought up the exact point that you, that you brought up. These guys are going to be eliminated. Uh, they shouldn't be here in the first place because they're not any good. You know, they're, they're, they're waiting for 20 seconds not to be eliminated. Well, what's the difference if you eliminate them or not when they're running 20 seconds? You know, they're, they're eliminated by, by their points rather than a literal elimination. So. You can find Matt on Twitter. He's at Matt Crossman underscore. He writes all over the place. I feel like I can't properly direct people and properly plug you because you're so scattered i'm sure you could do it better why don't you tell everyone uh what's current where they can find you all those kinds of things because you've done a great job writing about all this stuff probably 
uh, with more information than we were able to get out in this interview. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. I, uh, let's see, I write for Bleacher Sports Fans. I write for Bleacher Report, Rolling Stone, NASCAR Illustrated. I've uh, written a lot for Sports on Earth, although not, not much lately. Uh, those are my those are my biggest clients, and my, my NASCAR Illustrated stuff lines up on uh, NASCAR.com when it's not in hard copy. Oh, that's I read the uh, cover story you did uh, a few weeks ago. It was great. I forgot to mention that. I really loved it. Really, really good good thing. I, you, you must have tweeted it or something, and I went out and, and, and seeked it out. It was really good. Nice. Well, thank you. That will be that's uh, a Chase Elliott yep. cover story. That should be online in another week or two. Uh, I will, of course, tweet 75,000 links to it. <laughs> but that's, you know, not, not to go down the other rabbit hole, but that kid, is, it's, it's unbelievable what he did this season. He can win. He's already won one NASCAR championship. He can win next year, the year after that. You know, he can win next year and the year after that and still not be legally old enough to buy himself a beer. He can have <laughs> three... Uh, whatever the nationwide series is going to be called next year, Xfinity or whatever, he can have three championships before he's able to drink a beer. That that is unbelievable. So the most important thing is to be at Matt Crossman underscore, so you can get the links to all these things. Absolutely, that's what I would do. And uh, here, I think I got it. This is it, right? Oh, geez, hold on one second. They're gonna. You know, YouTube, come on. I'm trying to do something. You're going to make this stupid with an ad. All right, we'll listen to the ad for four seconds. I think I got it. All right, you ready? This is it, right? Analog kid? Yep. Yep, that was actually... Did you Google while we were talking, or did you just make it? No, I got it. The, the uh, Analog Kid was the only song I didn't know at my first concert. So, <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, it, you know, then afterwards you sort of obsessed with it for a while because it's like, how did I yeah. not know that one? I mean, I was only 16, so but that was the only one they played that I didn't know. Uh, and I had to ask my dad, and uh, he didn't know either, so he wasn't any help. But, yeah, I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for doing this. I enjoyed talking about it. I was fascinated by the whole thing. I'll give him that. You know. Um, yeah, I, you know, as much of a, as a critic as I have been, if the goal was to generate interest and buzz, then it was an unqualified success. If it was generate interest and buzz and ratings, moderate success. So, you know, I will give credit where it is due. One other thing that I would say, if they had asked me the one thing I would change, so I would just find any way I could to get that last race away from football. I just, I, I know that yeah. I know they might think it's different. It doesn't matter, but I had to make a decision at six o'clock or whatever. Am I gonna? And they were lucky. Eagles and Packers was fifty to whatever at the time, you know. So it was an easier choice. But I would just try to find a way to get that last race away from football. Yeah, that, that that's a battle they will. But unless their season calendar changes. Dramatically, that's a battle they will they will always fight and they'll never win. So, right, that, that's good. What about Friday night? They're just not going to do that. They, they think that that's they, they think that the ratings on a Friday night, the ratings and the tenants will be so low that. Yeah. You know, well, yeah, because they like you go to the race for the whole weekend, right? And people are going to be bummed if yeah. they got to show up there on Wednesday. Yeah, you, you have to think about it in terms of right. you know, who's attending these races. It's people who are taking. Uh, you know, sometimes Friday, but you know, mostly let's say Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. They go to the race, they drive home after the race. 
Right. Uh, that's the form that they, they don't want to. They don't want to mess with. So it's pretty much either Saturday night or Sunday, and Saturday night is not necessarily better because you have such a huge portion of your fan base in the South, and that means you're going against SEC football, which might be worse than NFL anyway. All right, Matt, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it. Yep, thanks for having me on. Talk to you soon. All right, I want to thank Matt Crossman and Mike Carrington for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this podcast and all of our podcasts on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters, and you can email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com. We did pretty good on our NFL picks last week. Finally, I went 3-1. and one. I won with the Bengals, the Bucks, and the Cardinals, and lost with the Steelers, who just couldn't quite cover. It puts me at 9-10-1 on the year. Uh, Don won with the Cardinals and the Patriots, but lost with the Bills and the Browns. Uh, he's at 10-9-1 on the year. All right. Uh, first thing we usually do is pick our own team, and uh, I'm going to do that. And it made me think, I may have been suckered into picking the Bills every single game this year. And I'm going to do it one more time. Uh, they're a four-and-a-half-point favorite at home against the Jets. Now, this is a game where I declared the Bills season over two weeks ago, and I think I was right. Uh, nothing's changed about that, but maybe the team feels it a little bit now. So this could easily be a game that they just decide – to go into the toilet, but I'm going to say this is a different Bills team and they're not going to go into the toilet and they're going to pull off a win. And the Jets just haven't shown me a real reason to believe in them either. So I'll lay the Bills. I'll lay four and a half with the Bills. I can't believe it, but I am going to take the Saints minus three versus the Ravens. I think the Saints were so bad last week that it bought me three points because I think if the Saints win or compete against the Bengals, this is more like a minus six. There's one thing the Saints are good at. It's night games at home. And I was kind of getting annoyed at how much people love to talk about, you know, the Saints are going to go home, so they're just going to win. And I was trying to warn people that this team wasn't good enough to just be able to win home games just because they were in the building. Uh, but no one wanted to listen to me. And I I didn't even want to listen to myself sometimes. But that... And this is the second time I'm saying this. I said it after Dallas that that felt like rock bottom. Uh, even if uh, you can't go to rock bottom twice, that bat loss was so bad last week that there's going to be a serious, serious reevaluation from everyone. Everyone isn't good enough. Coach, coordinators, quarterback, running backs, wide receivers, everyone on the defense. So... I don't know. I for some reason I expect them to win like forty four to twenty seven or something. <laughs> yeah, I uh forty four to thirty, something like that. I don't know. For my worldwide leader pick, I'm actually gonna pick the Saints. The other two games somehow feel like All right, well you're gonna do that. I'm gonna pick the Bills in my wild card. Okay. So we both I guess are picking each other's games. Yeah, because I'm gonna take the Bills in the wild card as well. So Alright. Uh the other games feel like trap games to me, like games that almost look like, okay, that line almost doesn't feel right, and those Vegas guys have proven to me over and over again why they're smarter than me. But I don't buy this this Saints game. Uh, as bad as they've been, and I'm sure after I say this, you're going to tell me, no, they're they're terrible or whatever, but 
they're what tied for first in that division still. Yeah, they're tied for first. It's, they could very easily win the division. It's hard when when the Bills lost two weeks ago to Kansas City. It was hard for me to make the case for them to make the playoffs, even at ten and six. And now ten and six for the Bills is unfathomable. The Saints are four and six, but they are in a playoff race. They're essentially control their own destiny in a playoff race. And I know how frustrating that can be for someone who's not in that race. Oh, someone. I don't care about that. I no, I, I wanted to make this point anyway, and you brought me to it. Okay. Uh, the Saints played a road game as defending Super Bowl champions, <laughs> eleven and five against the seven and nine Seattle team. Right. So don't. Be upset if Saints fans aren't going to cry for whoever you are that all of a sudden decided that it's such an unfair system this year yeah. as this, this is the first time and that I, there's a really bad division. And the only thing that ever gets remembered about that game is Marshawn Lynch running over 20 people at the end of the game. Right. So They were 7-9. and nine. We were 11-5 and five and defending road. Super Bowl champions on the road. So whatever. Yeah. Um, my point about that mostly was that as bad as they've been, and even though they've hit rock bottom, it'd be very easy and believable for that team. Like, if you're going to tell the Bills, hey, look, we're in this still. We can go out. We can get to 10 and 6, whatever. Even 10 and 6 isn't going to get the Bills a playoff spot. And that was my problem with them losing in Kansas City. They're, they're going to, their AFC record is not good, and there's going to be a lot of teams that have an individual head and head against them. Head to head or AFC or, right. or conference record, whatever. The Saints control their own destiny. Just go win your division games, win a win a game here and there, finish eight and eight, and you might make the playoffs. I wouldn't be afraid of the Lions in, in a, a playoff game. No, no, why would you bring be? it on? Yeah. So if you're Peyton, you might want to ream your players out a little bit. Drew but then Brees, get right back to Drew Brees calls it obnoxious optimism. Sure, and he, he says be. I he have obnoxious be. optimism because it's still in front of us for them. Now uh, they're horrible. <laughs> no, they, that's what I was waiting they for. are horrible yeah. okay so don't expect it but it's possible my point is the players should still believe it and they have a home game in front of the world to show it and the Ravens may be six and four but the AFC is a lot of weak six and four they're gonna frustrate the hell out of the world if they do win this game say 45 20 yeah because Nobody, I think, really understands what they are. I almost don't. I think I got it. I think I got it mostly that what they are. They're just a really, really bad squad. But <laughs> uh, I think you know people. People, they're they're confused people. If you follow Steve on Twitter, uh, you should follow his Saints. He you effectively live tweet the Saints games. Not not you don't tweet that often. Right. You maybe put eight out a game. Yeah, eight to twelve a game. If you're not sure. a Saints fan and you're not not sharing your frustration, they're pretty funny. And you tweet the Yale games too. If anyone's interested in that, you should almost put out a disclaimer like, "Here come the Saints tweets." Or right. these tweets are all about the Yale game, uh, but they are pretty funny. Um, yeah, so I'm going to take the Saints m- minus three. That feels so low. At yeah, home. and I think it would be six if it wasn't for. What they showed last week. Over under 50, bet the over in that game, too. Uh, game of the week, I got the Lions plus seven. or It's the Lions plus seven versus the Patriots. It's in New England. I love the Patriots. Yep. Patriots I, are going to win by three touchdowns. For the same reason I said last week, the Patriots have been smoking teams. They might be the best team in the league right yep, now. They're going to smoke the Lions. Yep. Lions are not a team that travels to New England well. The, the Lions, to me, are the strangest seven and three team in the league. 
I looked at their record. They won. They lost last week, right? By the way, they're seven and three because they got two absolute gifts yeah. from Atlanta. Okay, maybe and we New did. Orleans. Maybe we did talk about this. You know, if they, if Atlanta and New Orleans just are half functional, the Lions are five and five. And I think so. we either talked about this on the podcast. I know I talked about it in my living room on Sunday, or maybe we talked about it after the podcast. But I just don't think Matthew Stafford's that good. Is is he not that good? He throws it funny. Yeah. And, He's got those for 5,000 yards somehow. I thought he'd have a much better year. He's been a disappointment to me this year. I thought he'd be much better than he was. Yeah, I mean, he's one guy that, as goes so, Calvin Johnson, he goes. So we both have the Patriots. We both have the Bills. We both have the Saints. I'm going to take the Giants plus 3.5 and, and over Dallas, and I think this is maybe what you were saying. Yeah, it's a weird game. About a weird sort of trappy kind of thing, and I think what they're trying to trap you into doing is taking Dallas because it just seems like a low amount for a right. – you know, seven and three team to be laying against uh, three and seventeen, but the Giants are at home. Uh, they're good against the Cowboys at home, and uh, just feels like a Super Bowl type of game for them, right? A chance to beat the Cowboys at home on uh, Sunday Night Football. So uh, I'll, I'll take that. The game I'm going to take uh, is a game I don't I don't like to be losing fourteen to nothing before the teams take the field. But I thought about this game. The Colts got smoked. They got embarrassed. Their defense looked bad. Their offense didn't do much. Uh, the Jaguars are a good team to fix that. If you play fantasy football, a lot of what you've been doing this year, if you didn't have like a stud defense, defenses, yeah. is just play the team playing the Jags. And the Jags get to play a Colts team that maybe doesn't have a great defense, but one that got embarrassed. So I'm going to lay 14 points and think that the Colts look to get right. Listen to your heart. 